WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM. 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fifth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about state preemption, from guns to garbage, who's got the power? We'll talk about how federalism protects and constrains states' rights and how states can both protect and commandeer local control. From guns to garbage, water quality, and pesticides, how much control do states and towns have to protect their assets or advance their values? We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum this morning. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio today is Garrett Corbin. Garrett is a legislative advocate for the Maine Municipal Association. He has his JD from the University of Maine School of Law and a master's in public policy and management from USM's Muskie School. Welcome, Garrett. Thank you, Ann. It's great to be here. Joining us by phone today is Lauren Phillips. Lauren just earned her JD from Columbia Law School in 2018. Though she's not yet admitted to practice law, she authored an important article on state preemption for the Columbia Law Review, which you can read online on our website. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Delighted that you could make it. In uh, November 2014, uh, the oil-friendly town of Denton, Texas, passed an ordinance that banned fracking in their residential neighborhoods. Just months later, in May the next year, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas signed into law HB 40, a law that prohibits cities in Texas from enacting fracking bans. The wells are back. Um, In 2016, Charlotte, North Carolina passed the now famous transgender bathroom bill. Just weeks later, in March that same year, the General Assembly for the state of North Carolina passed HB 2, a bill since repealed that bars cities from passing laws to protect gay and transgender people. This is state preemption. It's the opposite of a local control, and parts of the country that have a long tradition of supporting local control are finding state preemption to be a trending thing. We're going to spend the show today talking about state preemption, what it is, where it comes from, what it means, and how it's playing out in Maine. So we're going to have a good conversation. Um, Lauren, I'd like to ask you to go first and just give us sort of the basics. Um, What is the source of the power to govern at the federal, state, and local levels? Where Where do states get the power to set their own rules? Um, yes. So I, I guess starting kind of at the broadest level, at the federal level, um, the federal power is based in the Constitution. Um, our government was designed to be one of enumerated powers at the federal level. Um, many statutes now are passed under the Commerce Clause, which gives Congress the power to regulate commerce between the states and with foreign nations. Um, so Congress now has pretty expansive power, although there are certain limitations. Um, and they're further inhibited that they can't violate some individual rights enshrined in the Bill of Rights. 
Um, states, on the other hand, have more expansive police power. Uh, the Tenth Amendment essentially reads that the powers not delegated to the United States um, are reserved to the states or to the people. Uh, again, those states are limited and they can't intrude on certain protected individual rights. Um, beyond that, their power is pretty expansive. Um, the local level, it's a bit more complicated. So localities aren't actually mentioned anywhere in the federal constitution. Uh, they don't have this preserved power like the states do. But the history of local power has developed over time. Um, in broad strokes, although there are exceptions, of course, uh, traditionally the focus was on the city as entirely subordinate to the state. Um, essentially, it had no independent power. It could only do what the state actively told it that it could do. Um, this has changed in a lot of places. Uh, it's something commonly referred to as home rule now. Um, it really originates from the states or from the people. Uh, there are provisions put in by statute or by state constitution that give localities certain powers, certain areas of control. Um, and that, especially if it's in a state constitution, is protected to whatever extent that they are given this power. Um, so we definitely see localities growing a lot more. There's still a lot of influence of localities aren't mentioned in the constitution. There's no city, there's no um, municipality protection, uh, but their power is definitely more um, expansive in a lot of states than it used to be. So if I, am I paraphrasing correctly to, stay, to say that cities mm-hmm. and towns have the powers that states give them? And um, in Maine, what powers do cities and towns have? Garrett, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Anne. Uh, the municipalities in Maine, the towns, cities, uh, also uh, plantations are creatures of the state. That is, they are technically corporations. They're uh, incorporated by the state. That's why when we uh, enter a town, commonly you'll see a sign that that reads incorporated with the date, you know, uh, 18, what have you. And uh, so in Maine, though, the home rule statute uh, uh, sort of solidified the authority of municipalities to uh, act as uh, entities unto themselves and govern themselves without relying on the state in every instance. And we can uh, uh, discuss that a bit more. Um, but but uh, going back to your initial question, uh, I wouldn't disagree with anything that Lauren said. The uh, the power originates with the people and is codified legally in the in the U.S. Constitution, the state constitution, and then in the local case, uh, certainly in Maine, in the charters of each uh, municipal entity or corporation. But the ability to write that charter is a right granted by the state. Correct. Yeah. And that's in uh, Article 8, Part 2 of the uh, Maine Constitution uh, allows for home rule authority. And then that's uh, sort of elaborated in uh, Title 30A of Maine Statute, uh, Section 3001, uh describes the ordinance power of any municipality. So that's the power to uh, enact any laws. It says that any municipality by the adoption, amendment, or repeal of ordinances or bylaws may exercise any power or function which the legislature has power to confer upon it, which is not denied either expressly or by clear implication. And that, uh, to some extent, sort of mirrors the Tenth Amendment that Lauren mentioned, um, that the power is not delegated uh, to the federal government by the Constitution are reserved to the states and to the and people. And so that one's saying the powers that are not reserved to the states can de- devolve to the towns. Exactly. Okay. Lauren, uh, is Maine, Maine is not obviously the only state that has home rule. What is home rule and who else has it? Um, home rule, so it's kind of different in every state. Um, it is some way of delegating power to a municipality, a local government, um, sometimes it's 
within statute, um, by statute. Uh, there can be complex statutory schemes. Um, sometimes there um, is a constitutional scheme that will give uh, localities power to set up charters. Um, it kind of represents itself in very different ways. Um, and even in some states, I, I believe New York is one example of there's, there's more traditional views on how a city is. They still allow states, some larger cities, to establish home rule charters. Um, so it kind of varies across <laughs> the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Um I mean, in, in the cases that, in the examples that I kicked off with in North Carolina and Texas, are those home rule states? I mean, did those towns think they were exercising power granted to them when they enacted those particular um, local ordinances? Um, so <laughs> I'm actually from North Carolina. I will uh-huh. caveat this. Um, I grew up there. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think technically, I'm I'm not 100% sure in this. I think... North Carolina is typically not viewed as a home rule state. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, they do have some pretty expansive powers. Even home rule states, I, I think it's important to recognize that um, even if you typically have home rule, it only protects certain things. If the state comes in and creates a mass preemption law, um, depending on what areas uh, a locality has reserved as their local rule, um, those can still sometimes be preempted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you like to add anything to that, Garrett? Go ahead. Yeah, I'd just say that Maine is uh, considered to be one of uh, 10 uh, what are known as strong home rule states. Uh, 30 or so of the states have some sort of mix of home rule where maybe some of the counties have some authority um, or, or different cities. Uh, and, and there's a bit of a mix. Um, but Maine, uh, along with uh, several other states, are, are some that are, are known as strong home rule uh, because they give uh, such broad authority to uh, municipalities to um, legislate on matters of local concern. And then I, I believe it's around 10 states really have, have little to no home rule. And that uh, means that they're dependent on, on every um, Every act that they do is dependent on uh, approval from state government. Seriously, and I, I think that's um, you know not too overblown to say that some states really have very little home rule, uh, and they're known as Dillon's Rule states, and that goes back to the um, uh, justice in the mid eighteen hundreds. Kind of uh, expose, ex, expounded on this this is theory that uh, local government is a creature of the states. And there was another justice. I'm going to blank on his name. I want to say it was Conley. Uh, started with a C, I believe. And uh, and he disagreed and said no. Uh, local government there is an absolute right of of all people. And uh, and his theories uh, developed into what is today known as home rule. Do you want to comment on that, Lauren? About home rule, strong home rule, weak home rule, no home rule, and Dylan's law or Dylan's whatever it was. Lauren? Yeah, I, I second all of that. Um, uh, I think definitely it, <laughs> I think it definitely traditionally used to be viewed as just a strict Dylan's rule, home rule, especially when it first came. But as Garrett was saying, um, it's hard for a lot of states uh, to specifically qualify where they fall in that spectrum of Dylan's rule versus home rule. Um, they're not as protected as some states with stronger home rule, but um, they do have some sense of independent power. Can can either of you cite examples on either side of the extremes? Like, what would be a state that had Dylan's r- rule, and what would be an example of something that a town in a state like that could not do for itself? 
Well, uh, I'll, I'll jump in and just uh, uh, pass it actually along to this question along to Lauren um, because I'm most familiar with Maine. But we could go back to um, – you know, uh, before the home rule uh, provision in Maine's constitution was adopted in 1969, where uh, municipalities had to go to state government for um, most of their acts to be validated or approved and, and be designated local authority. Of course, there was um, there's a strong town meeting tradition uh, in New England that goes back to the Mayflower Compact in 1620, and so local government has um, had strength, but all of that strength. Uh, for much of uh, Maine's existence was dependent on at least initial approval from state government. So the town would pass an ordinance and it would then have to go to the legislature to be sort of ratified? I think it would be the other way around where the, the legislature would uh, would designate some area of jurisdiction such as you know road um, – uh, construction or, or looking out for the uh, welfare of, of elderly or uh, lo- low-income inhabitants, and, and then the municipalities could go forth and provide for that. But certainly there were instances where a municipality would have a specific proposal that it wanted uh, approved, and they would come to the legislature for what are known as private and special acts that um, uh, certain municipal entities, the plantations and village corporations in Maine, still need uh, legislative approval via private and special acts to act but the towns and cities uh, in areas that are not uh, preempted or prohibited by the state uh, are free to act. Do you want to add to that, Lauren? Um, Yeah, that's the way that I understand kind of the traditional way of Dylan's role. Um, I think what Gary mentioned earlier, this creature of the state language has been really important in kind of Supreme Court jurisprudence and jurisprudence earlier on. Uh, They can only do what is explicitly given to them. Um, I think on the other side, a lot of people look to some of the cities in California as having particularly strong home rule, um, just the charter cities. Uh, in that case, uh, there's a few recent instances of um, cities have the power to set the um, some of the wage standards on their public works. Um, the state government can't interfere with that. Um, so that's an example of this is something of explicitly local control that the federal uh, that the state government um, cannot. Uh, kind of um, dictate in any way. So I want to uh, turn to some examples of state preemption where this is trending across the country and um, how many of those trends are landing in Maine. But we'll take a little break first um, and remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is state state preemption from guns to garbage. Who's got the power? Our guests this morning are Garrett Corbin, a legislative advocate for the Maine Municipal Association, and uh, Lauren Phillips, a a new lawyer from the Columbia Law School who authored an important article on state preemption for the Columbia Law Review. So um, let's talk about some of the areas of preemption that are sort of trending across the country from uh, gun control, minimum wage. Lauren, give us sort of the background, where we see the action in state preemption um, and what, what trends you're seeing across the country? Um, yeah, so I think there's been quite a bit of preemption in a lot of different areas, um, just as a, a blanket statement. Um, so uh, I think a lot of the recent um, preemption, uh, typically in the, the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of preemption in gun um, regulation and smoking regulation. Uh, but in some senses, that, that is still true, um, at least in the gun area. There is a lot of gun preemption of local municipalities. Um, 
I I believe there's only about five states that don't have any explicit gun preemption laws. Um, uh, I think five to seven. Uh, then some of these laws are changing. Um, they're getting more and more aggressive preemption statutes. I, I think looking to Florida specifically, a couple years ago, they uh, changed the law to include a provision that uh, individuals would be personally liable for um, passing any local regulations in contravention of state law. Pers- and be personally fined. Um, yep. And the governor may unilaterally move an individual in a local office um, if they pass something in preemption. So, so there's kind of in one sense a change in the type of preemption law. And then in a lot of different areas. So there's um, a lot of minimum wage preemption. I think that's a really interesting area. Um, the federal government hasn't raised the minimum wage in almost 10 years. Uh, so I think at the latest count, there were 41 localities that raised their minimum wage above the state level even. Um, and then there's a lot of preemption in that area. Uh, there, there's about, I think, 28 uh, states that have preempted minimum wage. Uh, that's according to the National League of Cities. Um, so areas, I think, where you can think of cities, urban areas that aren't aligning with the state government um, is typically kind of a hot area for local regulations and then state preemption if they don't agree with that. So explain how this would work. Let's say, um, well, explain how this would work. Give us some examples, Garrett, about maybe how it's worked in Maine. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, in the in the past, uh, the the firearm example that Lauren provided has uh, certainly been the case in Maine. There's been uh, very little latitude for local governments to regulate firearms in Maine. Uh, the the statute is uh, crystal clear. It says the state intends to occupy and preempt the entire field of legislation concerning the regulation of firearms, components, ammunition, and supplies, except as provided. And, and there's, um, you know, a few uh, really minimal exceptions. And uh, so, at the local level, uh, there have been efforts uh, in Maine to allow towns to uh, at least prohibit firearms in local government buildings or at the town meeting. Uh, so far, those attempts to uh, um, create that exception to the to the overall preemption have not been fruitful. Uh, the legislature uh, certainly restricts firearms at the state house, but they have not allowed municipalities to date to uh, to follow suit. Um, that's one example. Another uh, clear example that's a bit more recent would be Maine's Model Uniform Building and Energy Code. Uh, that statute begins. Um, this chapter provides express limitations on municipal home rule authority. The main uniform building and energy code must be enforced in a municipality, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and so uh, for towns with 4,000 residents or more, they, uh, they must enforce the state's building and energy codes. In towns uh, below uh, that many residents, they have the option of enforcing a code or not. But if they enforce a code, it has to be the state code. That's another example. Um, Really recently, uh, going from MUBEC, the Building and Energy Code, to um, Uber is is these uh, what are called transportation network companies, and they're this alternative to taxis. Uh, municipalities have been able to regulate uh, taxi cabs, but uh, recently a law was enacted uh, in 2015 that says, uh, notwithstanding any other provision in, of law, so that um, 
sort of says no matter what else is, is said in statute, a municipality or other political subdivision may not adopt an ordinance, regulation or procedure governing the operation of a transportation network company. So uh, that's something that has come up in, in a few areas. You know, Uber and Lyft are the two uh, transportation network companies that are uh, most well known. They're operating in uh, Portland, Bangor, Bar Harbor, I believe, um, probably some other examples now. But uh, right now, there's no authority for, for instance, the city of Portland to uh, restrict um, or at least designate areas for Uber um, to be present at the Portland Jetport at the airport. Um, that's another example. Well, let, let's just pause on those examples and, and like sort of starting with the gun one. Like it, in a town in a in a state like Maine, which is pretty gun friendly, um, you know, very strong gun rights, um, Second Amendment population here. Let's say there was a town though that wanted to and maybe had a gun violence problem and wanted to take further steps to prevent gun violence. What does our law? say about that? Uh, the law says that's really up to the state. So if there was a town that wanted to prohibit all firearms, for instance, or something along those lines, they would have to go and get state approval for that. I think that's a long shot um, in reality. And then even if the state were willing to uh, grant that approval, you've got the uh, Second Amendment of the federal constitution, which would be an example of, of federal right. preemption uh, that might um, prohibit the state from being, even being able to uh, grant an exception to whatever town was seeking that authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, g- g- take the second, the other example that um, that you talked about or- I forget what the, the second one. Yeah, well, yeah. Take the building code. I mean, let's say a, a big town. What would they possibly want to do that would be in violation of the state building code? Well, uh, sometimes they might want uh, more lax or more strict. Um, Codes and maybe that's sort of an odd example. Another one uh, that might be easier to wrap your head around is the is the state shoreland zoning code that says that um, you know prohibits uh, new construction within a hundred feet of the shoreland uh, shoreline of any uh, of the the great ponds or lakes in Maine, and then it's seventy five feet within uh, uh, of tributaries. So uh, if a town wanted to allow new construction within 20 feet, uh, that is just absolutely prohibited and they'd have to change the state law to do that. Um, there is a, a cap on on that. It's up to 250 feet, but then uh, there's an exception for uh, floodplain zones uh, for f- coastal flood management um, that also comes into play. So there are, uh, you know, uh, some of these uh, preemptions have multiple layers to, to wade through, but uh, either way, the Bottom line is if if it's an area that is preempted, uh, like these examples, um, you'd have to change state law and get explicit state permission to do that. Whereas other areas that are not preempted, municipalities have leeway to uh, regulate as they see fit. Talk about the the minimum wage one a little bit, Lauren. I I know we don't have that in Maine, but we almost did at one point. So talk about the national examples on the minimum wage, and then I'll ask Garrett to explain how it played out in Maine. Yeah, um, so I think pointing to a few examples that I think are particularly interesting. Um, again, there have been, I think at the latest count, 28 states that have preempted minimum wage. Um, I think looking why they're doing this, uh, oftentimes I, I think it's um, the cost of building is simply higher in some uh, urban areas, though so some municipalities that are located in these areas want to raise the minimum wage. So, I mean, the way um, this don't would, always agree. So the way this would work, 
would be to say sort of the state has a fairly low minimum wage and some town or city would like to have a higher minimum wage and the state tells them they can't do that, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, And keeping in mind there's, of course, a federal minimum wage, but it explicitly allows states and local governments to set higher minimum wages. Um, It's not the only minimum wage that you can give. Um, Some states have held that basically they don't want a patchwork of laws. Um, A lot of different cities with a lot of different minimum wages that would make it hard to do business. I think that's the argument on the other side. Um, So Cleveland, Ohio, for example, I think is an interesting um, case because they were to hold a public vote, a public referenda on whether or not to increase minimum wage to $15. Um, Six months before this happened, the state passed a law banning local governments from enacting their own minimum wage. To stop um, them from including a lot of Yes, yeah. to stop them from ever having the vote in the first place. Yeah. Um, taking it away from the people, whether they could vote, um, and not even taking it away after they voted to raise it, to not give them a chance to vote. Um, Arizona did something similar. Uh, they adopted proactive legislation. Uh, no local governments had raised the minimum wage, but they put in a state law banning local governments um, from restricting companies to set restricting companies' abilities to set work schedules um, to kind of control the employment laws at a local level. Um, North Carolina HB2 that you mentioned earlier, that's typically known as the transgender bathroom law, um, it also banned local minimum wages. Um, There's a lot of different laws kind of around the country that are being put in place, either targeted um, or just broad, expansive preemption laws to make it so the justification on their end is they don't want kind of this patchwork of laws. But at the same time, it's sort of compromising local self-determination in some ways, I guess. Um, Garrett, talk about the history of minimum wage in Maine, because I think we almost had a preemption law on that at one point, didn't and we? I might have to uh, take a pass on the history uh, behind that particular one I was not involved with, but uh, Lauren and, and this uh, minimum wage example raises a good point that sometimes preemption simply sets the floor, uh, like with the shoreland zoning example that I gave, uh, where, where um you know, in the context of minimum wage, the a municipality could not set a lower uh, minimum wage than the state level. Um, but uh, any effort to preempt local authority to set a higher minimum wage has not to date been successful to my knowledge in Maine. Uh, and, and the only example actually that I'm aware of is the city of Portland passed a higher minimum wage um, before the state did. Um, so, so certainly there's leeway to set higher uh, minimum wages. And, uh, and then another, um, you know, from the perspective of, of the organization I work for, the Maine Municipal Association, uh, a positive uh, um, takeaway from the efforts to preempt home rule in Maine recently, the half dozen or so examples I can think of have not been successful. Mm-hmm. So um, those efforts that may have been successful in other states uh, – there have been some attempts made here, but so far they haven't gone very far at the state house. I believe that was the case on the minimum wage that a preemption bill was introduced but failed to pass. Mm-hmm. And that might have been in the 2015 time frame, if I'm remembering correctly. So uh, I, I want to talk about, um, you know, why this is trending right now, Lauren. I mean, why has the activity in this area nationally been increasing and why do you think that is? Um, I think there are a lot of different reasons. I I think from a really broad perspective, um, there's a lot of the current makeup, at least, and it does not have to always be this way, and I don't think it will always be this way, but the current makeup is that there's a lot of progressive individuals that concentrate in cities, 
Um, and there have been studies to show that um, progressives are more likely to concentrate in urban areas um, that don't feel that they're represented by their state legislators that are representing both the urban and the rural, rural part of the state. Um, and that combined with um, a federal government that may not represent these individuals that, um, again, the minimum wage hasn't been changed in 10 years. Um, there haven't been some of the anti-discrimination protections put into law that some of these individuals would like to see. Um, I think that setup that it is currently set up at, and again, it is not necessarily always going to be this way. I think that's led to a lot of local governments wanting to put in place more progressive anti-discrimination regulations, a higher minimum wage, um, more restrictive gun laws. And in response, the state governments that represent more individuals want to preempt this. I think just in a broader level, that helps explain it. Um, there's also some broader conservative organizations that some scholars have attributed a lot of these preemption laws to. Um, the American Legislative Exchange Council being one example. Um, I encourage everyone to look them up and decide for themselves that this is the type of organization that they want their legislators to be involved in. It's essentially um, an organization that consists largely of uh, conservative state and federal legislators and corporate funders. Um, they keep their member list pretty secret, um, but they have a big role in promoting a lot of local um, lo or promoting model bills. Uh, they run the gamut in subject matter. They have, and you can see on the website, they have a Living Wage Preemption Act, Rent Control Preemption Act, um, a lot of different model bills that state legislators are meeting, creating, and then putting them into law. Um, so I think there are kind of broader reasons for this happening, and then there's more institutional reasons for this happening that has kind of led to the state of what we're seeing right now. Um, that I, I think will continue uh, given kind of the current makeup of every level of government. There's so much more to talk about on this subject. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Garrett Corbin, a legislative advocate for the Maine Municipal Association, and Lauren Phillips, a newly minted JD from Columbia Law, who authored an important article on state preemption for the Columbia Law Review. Our topic today is state preemption from guns to garbage, who's got the power? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378, or if you're local, you can call 469-0500. We have only one listener line open today, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, I'll ask you to take your answer off the line so that somebody else can call in. But don't wait to the last minute to call. Get your call in early. Um, would you like to comment on the trend are we seeing more of these bills introduced in Maine, and um, where are they originating? Is Alec playing a role in this, or what do you think? Well, I've seen a handful. I, I cover uh, five or six of the uh, committees at the legislature, and and before the uh, state and local government committee, there have been uh, bills which uh, proposed to preempt local authority to regulate pesticides uh, before that committee, before the energy. Well, explain what that sure. bill would have done, how it really would have worked. Sure. So uh, currently municipalities uh, can regulate pesticides um, as much or as little as they like, uh, essentially. 
the only requirement is that they uh, provide copies of their ordinances to the State Board of uh, Pesticide Control. Uh, so these proposals would have said uh, they would have nullified, or at least the, the first bill proposed last year, would have nullified any existing ordinances regulating uh, uh, the application of pesticides and, uh, and, and allowed for only state law to regulate pesticides. Um, more recently, the effort this year to do that simply exempted commercial applicators from local ordinances applicability. Um, uh, neither of those passed. Okay, I mean that to me that seems a little scary because I mean these towns are introducing these pesticide ordinances presumably to protect water quality or whatever in their town, and the state is coming in saying you can't protect water quality in your own town. I mean that's the way it sounds to me. So. Fortunately, the state has not uh, gone there, uh, fortunately, from our perspective. Uh, a lot of these ordinances actually date back to the uh, 70s that uh, were originally dealing with aerial spraying, uh, and, and they were meant to protect uh, the timber harvests uh, more in central Maine. The more recent ordinances uh, enacted have uh, tried to control runoff into uh, to protect fisheries, um, namely, and, and as well as water quality in general. Um, so certainly a, a direct health um, you know, uh, municipalities have police power to regulate health, safety, and welfare, provide for that health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. And uh, and that seems to be clearly within their authority unless preempted. But, but that like preemption this. bill mm-hmm. was attempted and failed, right? Attempted uh, twice in the last uh, – you know, last year there was one effort. This year there was another. Uh, same has been true of uh, – in the case of broadband. And then uh, – oh, hold, mm-hmm. hold that sure. example for one minute because <laughs> we have a caller on the line – Rhoda from Lubeck, go ahead. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. I have two questions, and I'll take my answers offline. Thank um, you. The first question is um, the marijuana law that we passed and now the difference between what towns and states can do. And then the other one is um, selling food, uh, farm uh, products locally, whether that is a state issue that the local towns can cover or if that's still um, debated. All I- right. Excellent question. Excellent questions, Rhoda. Thank you. And I know marijuana is right in your bailiwick, Garrett. So uh, and ahead. same with food sovereignty. Uh, those uh, those Rhonda, bills have sorry <laughs> come before the uh, state and local government committee uh, as well. And 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 we could probably devote the rest of the show to Let's those not, two topics. Right. But uh, they're both interesting and and uh, somewhat, from my perspective, fun examples. Um, uh, I'll try to summarize uh, where we're at with marijuana quickly and then and then get to food sovereignty as well. Uh, with marijuana, there is a uh, – um, and Lauren could probably speak to this – the uh, supremacy issue to some extent um, with uh, federal law um, still considers marijuana to be a prohibited drug at the federal level. Um, but under the Tenth Amendment, uh, the, uh, the states are uh, – do have authority to regulate uh, this uh, – uh, police power, police criminal law area. And uh, and so Maine, since 1999, has said that for medical purposes, marijuana is not going to be considered uh, – or consumption of marijuana is not going to be considered uh, illegal. And then more recently, uh, as we're all aware, uh, uh, a few years ago, there was a referendum approving the use of marijuana for non-medical purposes as well. Uh, in the in the local home rule context, there's clear authority now in law for each town and city and uh, to a, a good extent plantations in Maine to regulate um, uh, 
rec- what's been called recreational or adult use marijuana that I consider uh, just non-medical. Whereas in the medical law, uh, there's a bit of a gray area where municipalities can regulate the dispensaries, which are the the eight major retail uh, operations uh, in the state. But then uh, there's silence in the law with respect to the caregivers who are also authorized to provide medical marijuana to patients. And, and so there's a question as to whether uh, municipalities, the silence in the statute allows municipalities to regulate uh, as much as they like uh, those caregivers or if the silence actually intends was an intention by on the part of the legislature not to allow municipalities. So how would preemption come in come into this? Like, would it be where a town said we don't want it in our town at all? Mm-hmm. And the state would say, "Sorry, the law says it's okay, and you got to take it." Or right, is that uh, how it would work? So, so there's a clear authority for um, now. The law is that um, unless the town allows recreational or adult use marijuana. Um, the, it's not allowed in town, at least in commercial setting. There's a personal right to consumption and growth, but not commercially. Uh, with medical, the it, it's it's uh, fuzzier. Where I think it, it hasn't been tested in court, frankly. Um, but if it went to court, I think a, a, a municipality would probably have a tough time completely prohibiting marijuana uh, within their jurisdiction, uh, medical marijuana or consumption of it. But, uh, you know, if, if they'd like to provide for zoning and, and say that uh, these establishments that, that provide medical marijuana can only be in certain areas of towns or regulations along those lines, there might be more leeway. But it's something that's really been a gray area in the law that we've been trying to clarify. Let's go, move to the local food sovereignty question in a minute. But Lauren, what about um, legal marijuana and state preemption in other states? Are there examples you'd like to um, bring to the table? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think what Garrett said that this could be an entire hour discussion on this. Um, I, I think it'll be very interesting kind of to see what happens with a change in federal policy. Um, under the Obama administration, there was, um, kind of a more hands-off approach to at least, um, marijuana grown in a state. Um, and some of that has been changing, um, Attorney General just Seth Jeff Sessions doesn't, um, has kind of created a different policy on that. So I can see going forward that there might be kind of a different change now that you have a federal dynamic. So that, and we can see that in sanctuary cities, it kind of complicates um, how states and localities work with each other and work with the federal government. Um, So I think moving forward, that would be really interesting, but there's no specific instances right now that Better yeah. Um, I, like want to, <laughs> I want to remind our, our listeners that um, we're taking your calls right now. Uh, you can call in 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. Let's go to the second part of Rhonda's question, which was the food sovereignty one. Garrett, lead us off. Okay, so uh, food sovereignty is is the term that's been used to describe a, a growing movement um, nationally, if not internationally, uh, to to sort of exempt local farmers from a lot of the federal or state regulations on uh, their agricultural products. Uh, I think the idea is based in in um, you know pushback against uh, what are known as factory farms, and so there's a, a thought that um, a, a chicken that you buy from your neighbor down the road uh, might might be healthier than a chicken that you buy from another state. Uh, that's open for debate, but uh, in any event, the um, these ordinances that uh, some municipalities have passed, um, it's a it's a handful in Maine, uh, have sought to exempt 
local farmers from the uh, state regulation of of their agricultural products. And uh, but this was sort of a, a question of home rule, uh, pushing the limits of home rule. Uh, because the, the the general idea is that uh, a local law cannot uh, is really not allowed to contradict a state or a federal law. So so if it conflicts or frustrates the purpose, as they say legally, of that law, um, then then it might be found to uh, be preempted and, and uh, not legal if it were tried in court. Uh, so when it comes to food sovereignty, uh, the the state legislature uh, for several years um, um, attempted to enact uh, legislation that allowed or authorized these local ordinances uh, to clarify that they are not preempted uh, and these attempts to exempt local farmers from state regulation were uh, clearly allowed. The first few efforts um, – did not make it, and then uh, and then last year uh, they did get a bill through. Uh, and and long story short, the uh, federal government after that bill was passed said that they were going to resume uh, their own inspection of meat and poultry in the state if the state did not change its its uh, food sovereignty law um, in short order. Uh, there was c- concern. I think uh, many farmers, uh, certainly the the larger ones in Maine, prefer state regulation um, if if. I think at least for reasons of accessibility, uh, they're closer to the farms, the state inspection um, operations. And, and so they, they came back in a special session last uh, the end of October last year and tweaked the law to exempt meat and poultry. Uh, they also made another um, change that said that um, – that clarified that uh, to the extent – local ordinances are legal. Uh, They only apply to direct sales from the farmer to the consumer, uh, producer to consumer sales at the site of production. So that means um, if you want to buy milk or eggs from your neighbor uh, at uh, at their farm, uh, that's allowed. But um, in the municipalities that have passed those ordinances, uh, that is authorized under state law. But uh, when it comes to meat and poultry or sales away from the site of production, uh, it seems to be that uh, some of that is is not permissible, at least right now. Okay, so let me get this straight. The state originally had authority over the towns on this, and the, the towns wanted to get out from under state preemption. So um, eventually the state legislature passed a law that sort of removed the state preemption and allowed the towns uh, their own authority, at which case the feds preempted the state and said, you can't do that. If you do that, we're going to step on you. And so they kind of had a back down. Is that what happened? They had to walk it back at the state level. And so it it was a really interesting interplay of this idea of preemption um, between uh, state, local, and federal government. Really? Um, We've got another caller on the line, David from Brooklyn. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for the show. uh, I have trouble paying it at the same time. And the intricacy of the argument involves sometimes totally escape my troubled mind um, i'm i i'm uh confused by the ba- it, it seems to me basically and then i have a specific question that the whole thing is topsy-turvy why did we ever get into this state we the the country people you know why did we get into into the state you see i'm i'm falling right into it myself why did we ever get into this situation of the federal government being allowed to preempt the states, and why did we ever get into the situation of the states being allowed 
to preempt the wills of the individuals in the community. I'm interested in sort of the cutting edge, and I've heard some talk about this, uh, situations in which the law enforcement agencies of the local community, for example, might refuse to enforce the state law or even, God forbid, the federal law. Uh, uh, where does the uh, rubber meet the road in that regard? And that brings me to my second specific question. In uh, Between Brooklyn and, uh, and uh, Blue Hill, there's uh, several considerably uh, atrocious road situations, paving situations. One of them on the approaches to the our our our, uh, our beloved uh, cement arch bridge, which spans the reverse and uh, another couple on jobs which state has undertaken to do and has done woefully incompletely for more than a year and a half. David, I'm uh, going to interrupt you just a minute and say just a second and say that your your call is breaking up just a little bit and we're having oh, trouble hearing yeah. hearing you so I want to just ask you to pose your question real quick yeah. and we'll okay. move on yeah uh, what is involved in the local road crew patching some of these state roads which could be done with a small truckload of of cold patch asphalt very easily how many toes would be stepped on if the local road crews just decided to take their 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 in beholdenment to the community into their own hands and fix the road. Okay, these are two really good questions, and I'm going to let Lauren take the first one, which was the big democracy question. I mean, why is it sort of top down instead of bottom bottom up, Lauren? Yeah. So, uh, in our constitution, in the federal constitution, we have the supremacy clause. Um, and that essentially says that the Constitution and I think the laws made pursuant um, thereof, so federal laws and all treaties made, um, are supreme law of the land. So they preempt state law. Uh, at a very broad level, that's what happens. There's a lot of nuances. Um, but at a basic level, if you have a valid federal law, again, as I said at the very beginning, our Constitution makes it so that our federal government is one of enumerated powers. Um, there's only certain things that it can do, and the rest of the powers are reserved to the state. Um, so that is kind of the basic idea, but that if you have a valid federal law and it conflicts with either state law or local regulations, um, federal law preempts the state law. It's supreme. Um, you can have this expressed or implied. You can have the federal government enacting a law saying, this is a broad regulation. This covers everything. States can't make anything higher. Um, you also have the federal government kind of explicitly saying it's not preempting. As I said, with minimum wage, um, they said that states can set their own. Um, so we have all of these kind of broader levels, um, but that's kind of where the, the power for the federal government, again, to preempt both state and local regulations comes from. Um, and then everything else is reserved to the state. So that's why in many instances, states can re- preempt local regulations. Um, again, we have certain protections that we've decided to put in place in state constitutions or state laws. Um, but because the United States Constitution says nothing about local governments, um, it's traditionally been viewed, uh, Gary used the language earlier, they're, they're creatures of the state. Um, they are made from the state, and that's where they derive their power. Um, so that's kind of the situation we're in now, wanting to reserve more power either to the states or to local governments. Um, is often a matter of policy, and this is why I think this podcast is so important, encouraging people to vote for um, individuals who represent their interests, who will keep the power where they think it's best served, 
Um, but kind of from the structural theoretical level, it, it lies, a lot of it lies in the federal government, a lot of it lies with the states. It's the Constitution. Bottom line. Um, yeah, I'm it just, all stems from the Constitution. Right. I'm going to just do a quick station break, and then I'm going to let Garrett mm-hmm. answer the question about why the town can't pave a state road. Um, so you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Garrett Corbin, a legislative advocate for the Maine Municipal Association, and Lauren Phillips, a newly minted JD from Columbia Law, who authored an important article on state preemption for the Columbia Law Review. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. Uh, go ahead, Garrett. Why can't towns pave state roads? Okay, but uh, if I might, uh, just before I get to that, I want to thank David for the great questions and, and Lauren for the great answer. And just to um, kind of close the loop on what she was saying, I think it is all a reflection of our government being a democratic republic and the idea is that the buck has to stop somewhere. So it stops at the federal level. Uh, but this certainly this tension goes all the way back to uh, you know before our country was even founded in 1774. The British tried to clamp down on town meetings and and. They they weren't successful and they had to give up. Um, but uh, when it gets to roads, uh, th- there isn't that. That's actually more of a, a practical issue than a legal one. I think certainly the state, uh, in many instances, the state and municipalities work together on roads. Uh, there, are, there are what are known as state roads. There are local roads, and then there. Are, um, uh, state compact roads where there's something of a, a partnership. Um, and, and I don't think that uh, DOT, the State Department of Transportation, would mind uh, if a local uh, crew patched certain potholes. They probably wel- uh, welcome it. But uh, given that municipalities have uh, control over so many local roads, it's it's really a budget issue. Uh, anyone who's who's gone to their town meeting recently or is going perhaps this weekend, uh, there are a lot of them uh, slated. Um, if you just look at any town budget, you see that a huge chunk, uh, sometimes you know around the, a third of the budget is uh, goes to maintaining roads in the town I live in. There's a road that's sorely in need of, of repair. People would love to have that done, all of the road done this year, but for budget reasons, uh, they're going to have to do uh, spread it out over three years this year, just doing a third of the paving because that's all that they can afford. Um, so, so when it comes to roads, uh, it's it's really a question of the budget, and I think the the state to some extent is in the same pickle that uh, municipalities are, where they they only have so much to go around, and and the geography of Maine being what it is, we've we've got a lot of roads to cover. Right. I mean, there's so many topics that we haven't covered. We haven't talked about citing nuclear waste sites. We haven't talked about landfills. I mean, there's so many examples that we haven't covered. But I don't want to let the show end without talking about state preemption in the context of the bigger question about how democracy works and um, to the extent that we think about our towns and our states being um, experimental democracy sites how does state and federal preemption work in the context of trying out new ideas or creating a more homogeneous um, uh, regulatory environment? What What do you think about that, Lauren? Yeah, so, I mean, I think this is a really, really important point. Um, I think when we talk about what level of control we want, um, we need to look at the kind of why we're asking for that specific level of control. And typically, people have looked to states and local governments um, as there's there's an often used term for at least for state governments as laboratories of experimentation. Um, the entire concept of federalism and why a lot of people support it 
is that states can experiment with new policies that might not hold sway on a federal level. Um, they can show that they work and then eventually force federal change. Um, that's kind of the typical story of why we viewed federalism as so strong. Um, they're closer to the ground rather than a large federal government. States could typically represent their people. Um, they ideally would have better democratic communication and representation. That said, uh, a lot of what's going on now, you have these model bills that are being passed at the state levels. Um, you have state representatives that are representing very large portions of their constituencies um, that are maybe confined to a smaller area. Um, and so a lot of the reasons we typically look to federalism, we typically look to states' rights, um, actually is more often taking place at the local level now. Um, a lot of times it's localities that are passing more of these um, experimental legislation, trying out new things. Um, and people on both sides have said, well, let them try it. If they fail, they fail. Um, you're trying it on a smaller level, and if you succeed, maybe you can spread it further. Um, I think kind of that's one of the huge benefits. Um, and, yes, it's typically been attributed to federalism, but localities have the power to do this. Um, that's not to say they'll always represent their people better. Um, it's just to say that they may be able to. And if you're having more homogenized state level or very little progress at the state level, um, little happening at the federal level, uh, I think looking to localities and the benefits that they can present um, is so important right now for when we're deciding how our political system should work and where we want to push for political change. Um, on the other end, if states are preempting local governments at every chance they get before they can even pass these, um, before they have this chance to experiment, um, then little is getting done. Um, little is changing. Little is experimenting um, kind of at, at any level. Well, it's certainly, I mean, this can cut both ways, Lauren. I think you talked about how mostly now it's coming into play with progressive cities in the context of conservative state government. But um, Garrett and I were talking earlier about uh, Topeka v. Board of Education, which was, you know, Brown v. Board of Education, which was in Topeka, which was um, local control being preempted by the federal government to protect minority rights. So it can cut both ways. But what do you think about how this works in the context of the greater functioning of a healthy democracy, Garrett? Uh Sure. So those uh, uh, what Lauren mentioned before uh, uh, the laboratories of democracy idea goes back to uh, that was made famous by Justice Brandeis in 1932. And in Maine, we have just shy of uh, 500 what I'd call mini labs of democracy. Uh, the the municipalities in Maine uh, that can experiment with uh, different types of policies and and so. Uh, you know, when it came to um, something like segregation, uh, as you uh, referred to with that uh, Supreme Court case, um, that's an area where uh, the federal government decided that was not an area of public policy that needed any more experimentation. And, and they uh, thought, you know, uh, segregation along um, uh, along racial lines uh, was not permissible and they uh, uh, preempted that, clearly prohibited it. Um, but other areas like with uh, marijuana that came up uh, before uh, somewhat uh, uncertain territory and and, uh, and and different states are handling it differently. There's um, most states now, vast majority of states allow for medical marijuana. Maine is one of, I believe, 10 uh, states now that allow for the non-medical. And then within Maine, uh, 
we'll, we'll find out over the next few years uh, how many municipalities want to opt in and engage in the experiment uh, with commercial uh, non-medical marijuana and which ones don't. Uh, and then uh, the point you mentioned earlier with uh, getting involved, I think all of this uh, laboratories of democracy ideas that it, this is a democracy. Our country is it's not a dictatorship or a tyranny. It's up to us. So, um, you know, people can certainly get involved to the extent they like. Uh, local government is the level that's closest to the people and probably the most accessible. Uh, I've been on a planning board in my town for the last three years. It's been a great exper- experience. I almost said experiment, but uh, the, and, <laughs> and I, I've learned a lot. And, it, and you know, it wasn't too much trouble. So uh, at the local level, I just want to put in a plug for um, – Service a lot of local government depends on volunteers who who uh, give some of their time to a committee. There's a variety of different types of uh, local boards and committees that people can serve on. Find one that that meets your interests, and and uh, if you're in a, a at least one of the main smaller towns, you'll certainly find that uh, more often than not, uh, they'd be happy to have the help. That's, that's all good advice, and we're sort of coming to the end of the program this morning. So I'd like to give you each a chance to um, give us any parting thoughts. Lauren, what do you think? Last shot. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would just echo kind of everything that's been said. Um, I, I think just to your last point that states' rights have been used for, for egregious purposes. Um, but that's the importance of kind of our entire system. That's why we have the courts to come in and protect individual rights. Um, but I think that there is a lot of kind of hope now. A lot of the um, I think for a concrete example, a lot of the same-sex marriage progress um, before before it was declared legal by the Supreme Court was done at the state and local level. Um, so yes, states' rights arguments in the past have been abused and can be abused, but there is this huge potential for, for good um, and that we can really push for kind of change at hopefully any level. I mean, I think starting at our, our most local level. Garrett, final shot. I just want to say uh, encourage people to get involved. Write your uh, federal delegation. Write your uh, state legislators. Go and testify. And if you'd like more information about local government, uh, there's a a book that's available for free as a PDF on Maine Municipal's website called Local Government in Maine. That's available at uh, memun.org. Thank you both. We are now out of time. Um, Let me thank our guests again this morning. Garrett Corbin, a legislative advocate for the Maine Municipal Association, and Lauren Phillips, the newly minted JD from Columbia Law, who authored an important article on state preemption for the Columbia Law Review. You can read that on the League's website. That's lwvme.org. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum this morning, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thanks to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. For more information on this topic or to learn about other shows in this series, again, our website is lwvme.org, or you can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month. I believe it's July 20th. when I think our guest is going to be Amy Freed. So we'll see you here then. Thanks a lot. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you. Wednesday, June 20th at 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., the WERU Community Advisory Board will meet at WERU on Route 1 in East